Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 11, 1 through 9. The word of God speaks to us. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plant, a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. For, for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there... Confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there, were, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Hey, what's up, party people? Yeah, okay. I, you guys have a shocking amount of energy for eating as much uh, crazy turkey as you did this last week and for being as cold as it is, but welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, if we have not had the chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after the service. Hey, a couple of things that I want you to kind of have a heads up on as we step into the season. One of the really fun, exciting things that's happening is Christmas Eve this year is landing on a Sunday. So December 24th is going to be a Sunday. What that means is that we are going to be adding a service that day. We're going to do a 9 o'clock, an 11 o'clock, and a 1 p.m. service. So if you want to sleep in, if you want to do brunch with a family, and then show up to the 1 o'clock, that'd be a great option. But here's, here's why I'm telling you that is because we want to roll out the red carpet for our city. And this is one of those weird cultural times where if somebody's far from God or if they don't have a church home, but they get invited to church, they might actually show up. It's one of those weird times, and we're just going to be really explicit with the gospel that day, try to make it really simple and really, uh, really a powerful day together. So what I want to ask you to do, if, you're, if, you're, if this is home for you, if you're a member of our church, man, what we want to do is have full kids ministry that day, and we want to serve our families and the city like crazy. So we need about 30 people to volunteer that day. And if you can do one service, that's great. If you could do two or more, that would be even better. Uh, obviously, you have to go through our, our whole protocols. You have to have the background check. You have to have uh, the interview with us. You have to do all the stuff that we require everybody to do to keep our kids safe. But man, we just want to roll out the red carpet for the city if we could that Sunday. Sound good? So 30 people, I need you guys to, to jump in. You can talk to Caleb Savage, our student director, or Maddie Smith about jumping in. She oversees our kids' ministry, and we're going to have full-on kids' ministry that day. I'm really excited for what God's going to do. Uh, and I also want to say, if you're here today, and you're not sure what you think about the Bible, about Jesus, uh, maybe you've not been in church in a long time, and this is your first time back, man, it's an honor to have you. You don't have to 
uh, think the way that we do or believe what we believe to, to just be around. And we actually welcome your questions. If you've got stuff that you want to know, we don't have all the answers, but we would love to meet with you over coffee and just process what Jesus was all about, what he claimed, and what Christianity is all about. So thanks for being with us. I'm really excited to wrap up our 11-week series in the first 11 chapters of Genesis today. So next week, we're going to roll into an Advent series, uh, and then we're going to do a few other things heading into the new year. Eventually, we will make our way back into the book of Genesis, but today we wrap up our first 11 chapters as sort of the intro to the whole book. You're, you guys ready? All right, chapter 10 and 11 is where we're going to be. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of even the, the first 11 chapters of this book. Thank you for the foundations that have been laid for the, the reshaping that you've been doing. And today, God, we pray for more of that. We pray that you would come and you would meet those in the room that need mercy and grace and feel like they have absolutely nothing left. God, we pray that you would come to them and meet them with your mercy. And for others in the room that are actively building things that are opposed to you, opposed to your way, opposed to your heart, God, we pray that you would come lovingly against us and dismantle that. We pray that anything we would ever put our hand to that's opposed to you would just get dismantled every time we try to build it. We pray that you would keep us anchored to you and keep us safe in your presence. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I recently heard a story about a husband who attended church alone because his wife was sick. And so he goes to church, he's gone for a while, he comes back, and he's making lunch, and he's not really in a talkative mood, he's just wanting to make his lunch and sit down in the living room and eat it. But his wife is, you know, she's up and she's feeling better and she wants to engage him in conversation. So she says, hey, how, how was church today, honey? And he said, long. She responded, well, what was it about? Sin is what he said. You know, you can tell he's just trying to eat. He, he wants to like just get through his lunch. And she's like, sin, it was a long sermon about sin. What could possibly be said that was so long about sin, so she's curious. So she says, well, what all did the pastor have to say about sin? And he said, he's against it. And I, and I say that story as cheesy as it is. I say that story because that sort of feels like the last 11 weeks together on Sunday, doesn't it? The sermons have been long. They've almost all been about sin. And you're kind of like, I think God's against it. I mean, I think that's sort of the, the mantra of each sermon at Frontline Church over the last 11 weeks. And here's what's crazy. You might not realize that when you do a deep dive in the first 11 chapters of our origin story, you might not realize how massive of a role how prominent of a theme that sin actually is in this story. In fact, we get two chapters, just two, where sin is not mentioned and doesn't make an appearance. And then after that, it's all sin, sin, sin. I mean, we've got the origin of sin. We've got the nature of it. We've got the tragic effects of how sin disrupts and affects our relationship with God and one another and even the creation itself. We've got the, the story of how sin rapidly spreads to all people and infects everything. And then we even see God's judgment coming against sin. And in all of that, and all of the sin upon sin upon sin, you have God who is continually coming and making promises to redeem his people from sin. You have these promises, these, these little hints that God is gonna do something one day about sin. We, we read in Genesis 3.15 that there is coming a day where he will crush the head of the serpent, the one who tempted us to sin in the first place, and he's gonna redeem 
all things. And what's really fascinating, Aaron, Pastor Aaron got into this last week a little bit. What's really fascinating is the way that there's this literary device at play in Genesis called, it's a, it's a nerdy word called recapitulation. But the idea here is that the story is played out and then it's retold again. And it's played out and it's retold again. And you're going to see this all throughout the book of Genesis, but we've already seen it in the first 11 chapters. So chapters 1 through 7, you've got the story. And then chapters 8 through 11, that same story gets played back out, but with different characters and a little bit of a different emphasis. But it's meant to kind of hearken you back to what we already know. So you've got the story of, of, of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, but then there's this recreation narrative where God safely brings Noah through the flood waters, and he gives Noah the exact same mandate that he gave Adam in the garden, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Then you fast forward in the story, and you've got the fall of Noah, and, and Noah's fall into sin is shockingly similar to Adam's fall into sin. You've got, uh, just like his father Adam, Noah is... Is, is naked and ashamed in a garden, right? It's meant to remind you of, oh, we've seen this story before, right? Uh, Cain, there's this downward spiral where Cain, uh, infected by this, this beast of sin, ends up rising against his brother and killing his brother. And that same downward spiral of sin shows up again in chapters 10 and in chapters 11. And then just like God comes against the world in judgment, comes against this place and this people in judgment, he does the same exact thing in, Ge in Genesis chapter 11. He comes against the people in judgment, but as he does every time, he also makes a promise. He makes a promise. So it's the story that's getting played out again and again and again. And here's what I want you to see. This is unbelievable. That the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not just the first 11 chapters as an intro to the book of Genesis. They are that, but they're also, and maybe more importantly, it's the intro to the entire story of Scripture. That all of the questions that are getting raised in these first 11 chapters are what everything in chapter 12 onward for the rest of Scripture is trying to answer. That it's hearkening back to what questions are being raised in the first part of this story. Questions like, what's God going to do about sin? And, and what is he going to do with humanity and their unbelievable obsession to sin? And how is he going to love and forgive and redeem humanity, but also deal with sin and not destroy humanity in the process? And is there ever going to come this promised uh, uh, seed of the woman, the son who is born of this woman that's going to, to crush the head of the serpent? Will there ever come this man that doesn't fail like Adam and like Noah and like all the other people that are going to fail? Will there be one? Because right now the story looks pretty bleak. I mean, this is what the story is setting up. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. What I want to do is I want to give you some context as we turn to Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. We're going to camp out in the first nine verses of Genesis 11. Now, here's something that's really confusing. When you read Genesis, you would think that it's chronological, but that's not always the case. Genesis 10 and the events that it talks about in Genesis 10 come after what happens in Genesis 11. In other words, what we read about with this Tower of Babel getting constructed and built happens shortly after the flood. Uh, humanity had multiplied and had grown and increased in the land. And so sometime after the flood, we read the events that occur in Genesis 11. But in chapter 10, it's your favorite part of scripture. It's a genealogy. 
And, and I know when you get to these in your Bible reading plan, what happens is you're like, yes, my quiet time is going to be two and a half minutes long today because you just kind of glance right down the page and you're just like, I'm sure this matters. Maybe I have no idea why it matters, but it actually does matter. In Genesis 10, there are two things that are being said that are at least uh, noteworthy. The first is that Genesis 10 is like the table of the nations. In other words, it's showing how all the peoples of the earth have their origin in Noah and his three sons and how they multiplied and how they spread out and where they kind of went to in different parts of the earth. It's a fascinating, you could do a whole sermon on that. We'd probably kill Frontline if we did. But you could do a whole sermon on just chapter 10. It's, it's really significant. And there's a lot to be said about that, but at least one of the things to say is that on some level, all of us as humans are, are, are to treat one another not just with respect and dignity and honor because we're image bearers of God, that's maybe first and foremost the case, but also because we're sort of related, we're sort of family, and, and it's this bizarre crazy big family that you and I are a part of, but actually every person on, on this earth has its origin in Noah and his three sons. That's one of the takeaways of Genesis chapter 10. In addition to that, and maybe the more important thing that we see in Genesis 10, is there's this really interesting guy who shows up. He's one of the sons that's born in the long list of the genealogy, and his name is Nimrod. Now, you might think that Nimrod was just a, an album from Green Day in the late 90s, but actually that was a guy's name in Genesis. And we learn that Nimrod was a descendant of Ham. If you were with us last week, Ham was the son of Noah who sinned against his father, right? Ham's bad, sort of the story that you need to read. Ham's bad, and his descendants are going to wreak all kinds of havoc, and Nimrod is one of his descendants. We read about Nimrod that he was, quote, a mighty hunter before the Lord, and, quote, the first on earth to be a mighty man. So it kind of goes out of its way in chapter 10 to make a big deal about Nimrod. In addition to that, we're going to read in Genesis 10 that Nimrod is the one who starts the city of Babylon and is the one overseeing this project that we're going to be talking about in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. That was Nimrod's idea. So with all of that in, in mind, with all of that context, I've got three things that I want you to see today. Three things. What they did, what we do, and then what God does in response. Here's the first thing I want you to see, what they did, the Babylon project. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. This is new technology, right? And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen to this very day is a substance that's used in asphalt. And it was coming, coming up from the ground, sort of like an, uh, an oily substance coming up from the ground. Verse four, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, now, let me pause there. I don't know if you ever had this experience, but at times when I've read this story in the past, I've had a thought that's been hard to shake. Like, what's ultimately so bad about this story? 
it sort of feels like a good story. Everybody has the same language. They're unified together. They're working together. There's not a lot of infighting or racism. Like, what, what's so bad about this story? I mean, in fact, let's just remember, they just came from a big flood. A flood had hit the region, and they're sort of rebuilding after the flood. They find this plain Shinar that they want to settle in, and they, they want to make a hospitable environment for themselves and their family, and they want to build a city. I mean, what, what's so bad about this? I sort of think, like, uh, about the Moore tornado, you know, and, and when, when it hit in May of 2013, what happened after that moment was that all of us rallied together, and what did we do? We rebuilt, and we put things back together, and we were like, we're going to make our city good again, and we're going to do all these things to, to, to kind of fix what was broken by, by this disaster. This is sort of what it feels like they're doing. So what possibly could be the problem about this? Well, as you start to kind of scratch beneath the surface, and you really don't need to scratch too far to see it, there's some problematic things that are happening here, and it's less about the technology, and it's less about them working together, and it's more about what humanity chooses to do with technology and what we choose to do when we collaborate together. It's the heart posture and the motive. So let me just walk you through the story and look at a few things. The first is I want you to notice the eastward movement. Now, this is worded really weird in our ESV translation. It says this in verse 2. It says, as the people migrated from the east. But literally what that's meaning is that they are heading to the east. You read it, and it sounds like they're heading away from the east. They're actually heading to the east. They're going further eastward. And if you've been with us in our Genesis study, you know that in Genesis, any movement eastward is actually not just geographical, it's theological. It's movement away from God and away from his presence. One uh, scholar and theologian says it this way, Peter Lightheart. He says, from Genesis 3, west to east movement is always movement away from God's presence and his house. Eastward movement is always movement away from God. So the first concern that we see is that they're actually going further east, and further east is kind of a, a clue that something is off here. Second, there's a refusal to fill the earth. Notice what it says in verse 2, the second part of verse 2. It says, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and what? And they settled there. And then verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Why? Lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Again, this is subtle but it's really significant. And the point here is that God had given these people a command. Be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. And what are they doing? They're going, well, we like the first part of your commands, but that last command doesn't sound too appealing to us. So we're going to take the commands that we like. We'll be fruitful and we'll multiply. But that fill the earth part, we're out on that. That sounds dangerous and scary, and we'd much rather just kind of camp out here. So it's actually taking parts of God's commands and neglecting other parts. And then third, notice that there's an attempt here to make their name great. Look at what it says in verse four. It says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Cities and towers in and of themselves are just fine. They're not wrong or sinful. Cities and towers are neutral. But the motivation, the heart posture behind it was we actually want to make a name for ourselves. Now, here's why that's a big deal for two reasons. Up to this point in Genesis, God is the one who names humanity. 
God is the one who gives them significance and identity and meaning and purpose. And yet here what they're saying is, we want to do that. We want to give ourselves our own identity and we want to create our own significance and we want to define what meaning is for us and disconnect from God. But the second reason that this is a big deal is in Genesis, anytime somebody names something, it's an act of authority over that person. So you see Adam in the garden and he's naming the animals. What are they doing here? They're making a name for themselves. In other words, this is a way of them untethering from God, as it were, and they're saying, we want to now have authority over ourselves. So thanks, God, for all that you've done, but we're actually uninterested in relationship to you anymore, and we want to find meaning and significance apart from you, and we even want to have authority over our own selves to where we get to call the strikes now. We get to say what is right, and we get to say what is wrong. And then the fourth concern here is that it was a city and a tower that in its very essence was attempting to dethrone God and enthrone the self. An attempt to dethrone God and enthrone the self. Now let me unpack this one for just a minute. The the story is confusing because it's often called the Tower of what? Tower of Babel. If you grew up in church, you're probably somewhat familiar with the story. Even if you didn't grow up in church, this is one of those stories that almost has cultural, symbolic, uh, like a metaphor for us in our world today. So this is a known story, but it's a little bit misleading to say that this story is about the building of a tower. Because remember, they're actually building two things. They're building a tower and a city. They're building a tower and a city. And the city that they're building, though it's called Babel here, the actual city that they're building is Babylon. Now, Babylon in Scripture is a real place. It's a real city, but it's a city that has a ton of symbolic representation. In fact, Babylon is going to show up as a metaphor all throughout the Old Testament, and it'll even show up in the New Testament in the book of Revelation as a city that is opposed to God and everything that God stands for. In fact, the ESV Study Bible says this, says, as a city, Babylon symbolizes humanity's ambition to dethrone God and make the earth its own. It's an attempt to recreate heaven on earth, but God's not invited. So we want to have heaven on earth. We want to have paradise here now, but paradise in the way that we define it without God. We don't want God's rules. We don't want God's ways. We don't want his presence, but we want progress, and we want the city to be something that we can define ourselves, make our own identity, choose what is good and evil for ourselves. I mean, this is unbelievable what they're doing here. It's not just building a tower. It's building a city that's opposed to God. And, and more importantly, the tower that they're building is often kind of pictured as a giant skyscraper. Like, I think this is the most common image that comes to mind when you and I think of the Tower of Babel. And when you think of this, the issue is, oh, I guess what they were trying to do was physically reach the heavens. And often that's how the sermon is preached. It's like, you know, they were trying to physically reach God and maybe they wanted to climb up to God and then kill him or something, you know? Um, and, and, and they thought that they could actually build a tower that would reach the very place of God. I actually don't think that's what's happening here. What they're designing is not a skyscraper. They're not trying to get super, super high so that they can reach God. What history is going to tell us is what they're actually building, what we call a tower, they would refer refer to it as 
a ziggurat. And I'll show you an image here of what a ziggurat looks like. Now, a ziggurat's more like a pyramid-type tower, but at the top, what's there? At the top, there's a temple to a god. The problem in the story is that at the top, they're not building a temple to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Guess whose temple that they were building here in Babylon? Guess whose temple that they were constructing? It was actually the God Marduk, the God of Babylon. So what they're doing here is they're building a city opposed to God, and they're building a tower with a temple to a false god, the God of Babylon. Now, one more like total mind bender. You ready for this? Nimrod, that guy that I talked about earlier in Genesis 10, who constructs the city and is the one who's probably overseeing the construction of the tower. History is going to tell us that Nimrod later deifies himself. And guess who, he, guess who he gets called? He calls himself Marduk, the god of Babylon. So literally, Nimrod is building a city and a tower to his own name to make his own name great. He literally deifies himself as a god and is known throughout history as the god of Marduk. This is so much worse than just building a giant skyscraper. This is so much worse than just rebuilding after after a disaster. The very city and tower are an affront to God and his ways. They're saying, God, we don't want you. God, you're not invited to our city. We're gonna create a space where you're not welcomed and we are making this to our own name. We get to choose what's right and wrong for ourselves. We don't need you. And I just wanna say, I'm really glad that we as a people are much different now and don't struggle with any of these things. I'm just kidding. I I think what's so fascinating about this story is that when you read it in its original context, you realize this is a story that reads us. This is a story that reads our mail. Think about it. A move away from the presence of God while maintaining an obsession towards progress. A refusal to obey the commands of God, at least the ones that we find personally unappealing or a turnoff to us. An attempt to recreate heaven on earth paradise here now, but without God. So, you know, we want neighbor love and we want all the good of the kingdom of God, but we don't want any of the the tree that gave us that fruit in the first place. This story that we read about in Genesis 11, an attempt to dethrone God and enthrone self, it's our story. And that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is what we do. Digital Babylon is where you and I live. Now, this phrase, digital Babylon, is not something that I coined. That's a phrase that was coined by David Kinneman, who is the uh, president of the Barna Research uh, Center. And David Kinneman used this phrase to try to describe what he was seeing as sort of the new cultural place that we find ourselves, digital Babylon. And there's a lot of ways that he described it. He talked about our uh, autonomy, how we've become unmoored from religion and tradition and any sort of institution that gave us structure and gave us order. We've sort of become unanchored and unmoored as a society from those things. And we're now just kind of floating out there, defining what is good and evil for ourselves and creating our own identity. He talked about how unbelievably connected we are now that we all have phones. We're, 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 totally plugged into every person and all the data and all the news cycles and everything that's happening all the time. I mean, there's a lot of other ways, but what I want you to think about with this digital Babylon idea is actually those internal guiding principles that are just in the air that you and I breathe in. 
These are things that digital Babylon is telling us that we don't even realize it's telling us. It's something that we don't hardly ever name, but we can sense it happening to us. Let me just give you a few of these internal guiding principles of digital Babylon. The first thing it's going to say to us is, come, let us build ourselves technology. Let us build ourselves technology. And the idea here in our culture is that all technology is, is inherently good and that the more that we develop as a society with AI and with space travel and with whatever and, you know, all the, all the tech, the more we develop as a society, the better and better and better our society is going to get until we arrive at a utopia. So there's sort of this belief that it's like up and to the right, you know? Come, let us build ourselves a world of personal freedom and autonomy. Again, this isn't something that somebody will tell you, but it's in the air that we breathe that, man, if we can just throw off the religious restraints and the oppressive ethics of our grandparents, if we can get rid of all that old baggage and all that old religion, then we can be free and we can do what makes me happy even at great cost to you. As long as it makes me happy, and that's really the thing that matters, like the world is my canvas to express my own internal desires. Come, let us build ourselves a world of social justice. I don't know of a culture that talks more about social justice than our current culture today. And the idea here is, man, if we could just identify and tear down every bit of oppression and inequality in our world, then we're finally gonna have the place that we've longed for. We can get heaven now. Come, let us build ourselves the right type of political leadership right? I don't have to remind you that next year is an election cycle, which means next year about 80% of your friends will lose their collective minds. And the idea here is, is like, man, if we could just all learn to stop being so ignorant and foolish and quite frankly dumb and everybody start to believe what I believe politically, then we could turn this thing around. We could fix this thing. We, we, we may not say that, but we really do believe that. We've got the power. We've got the control. Come, let us build ourselves money and wealth. Man, if we could just buy more toys and, and, and acquire more stuff and purchase more vacations and, and have more experiences that money could afford us, then we'll finally be safe, secure, and happy. Come, let us build ourselves DIY spirituality. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my own version of Christianity, things that I like about what the Bible says, things that I don't like, things that I like that Jesus did, and then I'll take off the things that I, I find offensive or are hard to swallow, and I'll just avoid those things or literally deconstruct them completely gone. Come, let us build ourselves a kingdom without a king. And, and, and friends, this is really the thing that I see happening in our own city where it's like, man, we've got an amazing city. We've got great restaurants. We've got cool coffee shops. We've got dog parks that you can even have people like play. I think Brandon Leib played for a dog park. How cool is that, right? Like you got dog parks that are now hiring musicians to play music. This is an unbelievable time to be alive. Uh, do you remember when, when you were kids, some of you are older in the room, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to Blockbuster. You had to get a giant cassette thingy. You had to plug it in and most of the time it was scratched and you had to drive back to Blockbuster and get another version of it. Now we have unlimited streaming opportunities. Every Christmas movie that you could ever want to watch, you just pay for a subscription and watch it. We've got, what a great time to be alive. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but, but what happens is we really think, man, like over time, and, and this is subtle, this is not really sinister, I don't think, but over time, in a subtle way, what happens is we start to get so comfortable here in our city and in our tower that we don't need God anymore. God, I don't need you. I've got Amazon. I don't need you. If I'm sad, I'll just buy something. 
We don't need you. If I feel pain, I'll just drink it away or, or numb out and look at porn. God, we don't need you because we've got a city and a tower. We've got heaven on earth. We're doing just fine. Thank you very much. Jeremy Rifkin, who is an American political advisor and a social theorist and has the coolest title ever. I'll never have any of those titles behind my name. It's like Andrew Burkhart, full stop. But this guy, American political advisor, social theorist, author, blah, 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 right? He, he was critiquing the biomedical technological advancements that our society was making. And, and here's what he said in critique of that. He says, we no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world, and because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior, for we are now the architects of the universe. We are responsible to nothing outside of ourselves. We are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Friends, digital Babylon is alive and well, and it's in you and it's in me. This is a story about a group of humans literally hell-bent on creating heaven apart from God, dethroning him and enthroning the self. And it's the same thing that the story of scripture plays out again and again and again and is playing out in our own lives today. What does God do about it? Well, that leads to the last thing that I want you to see, the gospel project. God's response to the Tower of Babel and the city of Babylon construction is an unbelievable response for many reasons. Look, look at it with me. Look at verse five. There's some irony here. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Do you hear the irony in that? They're constructing a giant city and tower to reach the heavens, right? Uh, 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 they're making a name for themselves with their city and their tower. And God's like, I gotta come down to see that. Give me a minute, I'll be down. And, and I love that he even says that the children of men constructed, right? So in other words, this is like the dad who gets down on his knees to see his child's Lego tower that they built. He's like, oh, there it is, I, I finally see it. There's irony in this. God has to come all the way down to see what they're constructing. Now, keep reading. Look at verse six. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, just stop here for a minute. This is not God being insecure. This is not God like, you know, twiddling his thumbs and, and anxious panic. He's, he's not going, oh my gosh, what do they do? Like, what, what, what do I do? If they keep doing this, they're going to overtake me. This is going to be bad for me. That's not at all what God is thinking. God is looking at what humans choose to do with all of their wisdom and brilliance and techno technological developments. When we all get together and when we're all working in cooperation, do you know what we choose to do? Horribly sinful things. And he sees that and he knows that. He's the only sober one in the room. It's like he's trying to take the bottle out of our hands and he's like, man, you guys don't know what you will do if this is left unchecked. I mean, right now, and you know this to be true, right now in this very second, there's enough nuclear weaponry on planet Earth that China, Russia, and the U.S. have to destroy the planet time and time and time again. Guess what we've done with our technological advancement? We're ready to literally kill the planet at the drop of a hat. 
I mean, this is what you and I do. And so God here is, is not insecure. God here is coming against the people in both judgment and in mercy with what he's about to do. Look at verse 7. It says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God does two things. He comes down and he brings judgment, but he also brings mercy. He brings judgment by confusing their language and kind of making it impossible for them to finish their task and work together collectively. But he also brings mercy because left unchecked, this could lead to something even more sinister and even more dangerous for all of humanity. This is an act of his mercy and his grace. And friends, I want you to see this. There are times, there are many, many, many times in your life and in mine where God will come against us in love and disrupt whatever it is that we're trying to build if it's against his heart and against what's actually good for our lives. It'll be an act both of his judgment at times, his discipline at times, but often and many times it's an act of his sheer grace and mercy where he would come to you while you're trying to construct and, construct and build a life apart from him that will not work and he confuses it like crazy. There is a confusing work that God will do out of love. And you see this playing out in our own society in a, in a digital Babylon like ours that says that technology is the answer, politics are the answer, personal freedom and autonomy is the answer. All these other faux answers that we've offered, what we've actually found is the, the confusing work of God there, haven't we? Technology, the last 120 years, have been the most bloody, violent, and dark in the history of the world. Social media, the thing that we thought would be a tool to bring us all together and make us all friends, now we use to cancel people that we don't like. Politics. We've had massive political shifts and changes from Obama to Trump to Biden to probably another major shift in 2024. And the only thing that stayed the same, the one constant, is that our world is still a hot mess. Personal freedom and autonomy well, here's the crazy thing about that. It's not the answer because freedom isn't the same thing as meaning. Those are different. And we've taken the freedom bucket and we filled it to the brim, but over here is the meaning bucket and it's totally empty. And we think if we can just get more and more free, we'll have more and more meaning. But you know in your sober moments, it's only the restrictions in your life. It's only those things that you have to sacrifice for and are challenging and difficult that are worth anything and give you meaning in life. You don't get freedom, you don't get meaning by freedom, you get it by restrictions. Social justice, man, a culture that talks more about love and diversity and equality and inclusion and we teach classes on it, and yet we are more divided, more tribal and filled with suspicion and bitterness toward one another than we've been in a while. And on and on and on I could go, but my, my point is this, every single thing that we put our hands to and say, we're gonna do this, we're gonna build a city and a tower and we're gonna have our world our way without God. It'll be heaven on earth without him. It just doesn't work. And he comes in love and he comes in judgment and he confuses our language. He makes it impossible because it just doesn't work. And here's what's really ironic. Babylon, that name, means the city of God. 
God here changes it to Babel, which means confusion. So they go from having, or sorry, the gate of God to confusion. And Nimrod, instead of being known in history as this powerful, mighty warrior hunter, Nimrod is a new word that we use in the 90s for idiot. And that happened because Elmer Fudd was called Nimrod by Bugs Bunny, and it was ironic. So Bugs Bunny was calling Elmer Fudd a mighty hunter, and it became known for, like, you're just a big idiot. And now the very man who set out to build a city and a tower to make his name great. Do you see the irony here? His name literally means idiot in our culture today. What judgment from God. Now, with that in mind, notice what God does to people who don't set out to build a great name for themselves, who don't have anything to offer God, who are totally bankrupt. Look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Here's the gospel turn. This is amazing. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 10 gives us a genealogy that ends with Nimrod. Genesis 11, after the Tower of Babel story, gives us another genealogy, and it ends with a guy named Abram, who, guess what, is from Babylon. Some pagan dude from Babylon didn't do anything good to deserve it, didn't have anything good to offer God, and yet God comes to this literally nobody, this pagan man, and he goes, hey, I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And Abram, Abraham is going to have a son who has a son who has a son who eventually is Jesus. And here's who Jesus is. Jesus is God coming down once again, but this time not to judge the city and the tower, but to die for the city, to literally hang on a cross and receive the judgment of God on our behalf, to take our sin on his own shoulders so that we could get the blessing of Abraham. And if you want a great name, here's, here's the greatest name. There's a name that's above all other names, and his name is Jesus, and that's who we get spiritually bankrupt nobodies like you and I. So here's our story as, a, as Christians, man. Our story is not that we're all gathered in here because, you know, we've constructed a religious life for ourselves and we've designed these rules, and we're just trying to be good and be moral so that we can earn God's grace and happiness. We tried the Babel Project, and it didn't work. We tried to build our lives in other areas, and it didn't work. We did the things that the world said to do, and it didn't work. And in that place of brokenness, that's when Jesus came for us, forgave us, loved us, gave us his blessing, and here we are, as broken, as messed up as we are, here we are. We've been rescued by his grace. I want to invite you, would you stand with me? And while you're standing, I want you to think about these questions. And is there any area in your life where you are experiencing the intervening, frustrating, confusing work of God? Is there an area of your life where God's just trying to get your attention? Certainly not all suffering and tragedy and brokenness is a result of God trying to intervene and give confusion Certainly not. I mean, we live in a fallen world and people are sinful and we have a real enemy. All of that's true. 
But there are times, friends, where we are actively building something and God is actively opposing what we're building. I'm trying to ask you, is there something that you're building right now that God is opposing? He's trying to confuse and get your attention. Is there any area of your life where you have maybe even unconsciously displaced God and sought to build a city and a tower, as it were, with yourself at the center? your own thoughts and opinions and happiness and desires, and that's all you think about. It's your own city and tower, and you've sought to build it. Is there any area where you are opposing God and seeking to get yourself what only he can give you? Today, friends, you and I are getting invited to a table that reminds us of the blessing that we have in Christ Jesus. Jesus had his body broken on a cross for us. He had his blood shed on that cross for our sins so that you and I who were cursed by sin could be blessed by him. And today, whatever it is that you're carrying or wherever you are, you are being invited again to receive this blessing in a fresh way. If you're actively building something, you're being invited to partner with God and seeing that thing dismantled. Like today, wherever you are, you're being invited into repentance and to receive grace again in fresh ways. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, man, this is our hope. Our hope is what Jesus has done for us, not what we can accomplish and achieve with our own technology and human ingenuity. It's all about what he's done for us. And so what I would say to you if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus is we're gonna have men and women down front in just a minute. We would love to talk with you, pray with you, uh, tell you what it looks like to become a follower of Jesus for the first time. So you're invited to do that. Don't come and take this meal because this meal is for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, who are trusting in Jesus and have been baptized to demonstrate that. So if that's not your story, man, this meal is not gonna help you. But Jesus is, is, is calling you to himself. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, you're, you're being invited to, to come today. And what I want you to do is get in groups. And let's just, again, where we need to repent, let's repent. And where we need to receive his grace today, let's receive his grace in fresh ways. Amen? You guys are invited. Come and grab the bread, grab, grab the juice or the wine, get in groups, and take communion together.